making it harder for Zach to edit because he has to die for our family. How fast can you? All right, so we did it in our second podcast, and I think we're going to make it a little bit of a recurring thing at least. Um, just checking in. We're, in. we're in a bit of historic times right now, um, certainly since the Spanish flu in the 19, what, 1918. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's nice to just sort of check in with each other and document kind of where this is going. It's a little bit of a crazy time. So, uh, Sarah, how are you doing right now? I'm doing pretty good. Um, so we've kind of been on... On lockdown, voluntarily, of course. Uh, my son had the sif, our son, I suppose, mm-hmm. had the sniffles, um, and and I kind of caught it, and we kind of just felt like, why should we put someone at risk, even if it is just baby sniffles? Um, so we've been home, and we're coming up on two weeks. Um, so that's been a, a, a bit of a long time. But, I mean, honestly, we really can't complain hearing some of the reports coming out in New York. Yeah, so we have food. We have uh, Netflix. Oh, wait. Uh, yeah, here's the best part I forgot to say. So it turns out that uh, Picard on, is it CBS? CBS, because of the coronavirus, offered the new Star Trek, uh, the new, whatever you want to call it, reboot of Star Trek called Picard. Uh, they're offering it for free for a month on CBS, which is the best thing ever because I love Jean-Luc Picard. Oh, Captain, my Captain. So I signed up for that last night. And that's where I'm at. Where are you at, Zach? Um, I'm mostly pretty good. I, I'm definitely not what you would call uh, a homebody. I generally like to go out and run to the store about 100 times a month. But uh, it's not been too bad. And honestly, uh, as much stress as there is trying to like work during the day while Elijah runs around on the floor, he learned to crawl since we've been home on quarantine. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is amazing, but also he likes to run from our living room to our kitchen. And so you have to get up about every 10 minutes and chase him down. Sarah mostly has to get up and chase him. Yeah, let's be honest. We'll be here. I'll be honest. I'll give Sarah the props. Um, so that's a little, it, it's awesome to be home with Elijah and with Sarah. It's, uh, it's not like shopping in Ikea. We haven't really wanted to kill each other. I mean, once or twice, but nothing, nothing terribly major. Um, but it is, I mean, you're stuck in your house. And I think the awareness of, of being stuck versus being like voluntarily here, uh, is a little hard. I mean, the first couple of days I had this notion, like, it'll be like a snow day and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get our work done in a couple hours and then we'll sort of hang out and watch Netflix. And, uh, it really hasn't been that we've probably done more, work trying to do the podcast and, and uh, Insight Night Online. I, I've probably done more work now than I would in a normal week just because of, of how different things are. Um, but overall, doing really well. And actually, it's funny that that you said that because it puts us right on topic. Um, but yeah, I, I think that, that definitely fits in what we want to talk about today, which is something maybe some of you never heard of. Um, I know I didn't hear about it until I was probably a junior in high school, and I only ever heard about it because I went to Catholic school. So, Zach, uh, go ahead and give a little bit of an introduction. Yeah, and I never really heard about this topic um, until after I had decided to do it. Um, One last, uh, I guess, bit of intro is, so what's been interesting about Sarah and I both being at home for, for two weeks and really doing very similar jobs is it's been a radical experience of family. Mm-hmm. Um, neither of us really ever wanted to be a stay-at-home parent. In fact, um, without giving you too much insight, we never really had kids in the vision. Even when we got married, uh, it was kind of understood that neither of us had, had previously felt called to be a parent, and we had would be accepting of it if it came to us, but it was not something that either of us like aspired to. Um, so being at home together and having Elijah, it, it's been kind of, it's been crazy. It's been busy, it's been messy. Um, but it's also been this experience in humility and a really big experience in um, how to be family and then how to be church on top of that. Um, Sarah and I, both being youth ministers, are committed to our prayer lives, but we don't uh, we don't always make time to, to pray super well together anyway. But now I mean, we are the church to each other, so we've been way better at 
uh, praying together and watching mass, attending mass together and, and all things like that. It's been pretty awesome. All that by way of intro to say, uh, a topic that we've been thinking about is the domestic church or how do we be church in our homes? Domestic church. Sarah really doesn't like the term domestic church. Tell me why. To be honest, it, it just rubs me the wrong way. And I think I have I have two reasons. Um, one I think is, is legitimate. The other maybe not so much or maybe is um, a bias of, of my place in history of where I met in 2020. Um, and I guess I'll go with, with that. Is So you hear the word domestic. Um, and being a woman in 2020, I mean, automatically you hear domestic, you just go, ugh. Like, we've all been taught that. We've all been taught that. Um, it's everywhere on Instagram. It's everywhere on Pinterest. It's everywhere on, on, I mean, anything. Snapchat. If you watch the stories, I haven't in forever because, honestly, they, they make me super angry. But the word domestic is, uh, I think it's meant, or it's read at this point, I should say, by women in 2020 as being demeaning. Yeah, and that's where you get things like domestic bliss as sort of demeaning terms for, like, the wife needs to make the household happy. Exactly. And so when I first heard about the domestic church, I think I said, you know, I was a junior in high school and we were talking about it in my theology class. I remember my reaction was, you know, this has everything to do with frilly aprons. Go stand in the corner in the kitchen and keep yourself busy while everyone else goes out and does the important things. Um, Kind of like a little pat on the head, like, oh, hey, there you go. You, You did this. Good job. So that that's that's my one gut reaction. But I will say uh, that was formed before I was a matriarch of my own little church. Um, so my other my other reaction, and this is a little bit more seasoned, I'll say, or a little bit more of a mature reaction, is uh, instead of one of feeling like this is a consolation prize or this is just something to um, distract you or make you feel like you're doing something when really, you know, you're not doing anything. Rather, I feel a sense of efficacy, um, a sense of this is where um, I can can do something. This is where I can be a part of something. This is where I can help something grow. Um, yeah, so it's been, it, for me, it's a little bit about reframing that word domestic and not letting my place in, in time, again, in 2020 or you know, even even the the early aughts into 2020, not letting that um, be a bias, because truly this idea came long before a lot of the struggles we're seeing now, long before the struggles of you know uh, the the second half of the the century, the 19th century. I'm sorry, the 20th century, and the, you know, the 19th century as well, because we know it comes from the early church. So Zach, go ahead. Yeah. So the idea of the domestic church is. Uh... I guess opposed to what we would call the institutional church. So we tend to think of the church as the buildings and mass on Sunday and the priest bishops, the pope, the hierarchy, um, all things like that. And that's uh, that's certainly a part of the church and an important part of the church. Jesus founded the church on Peter, the rock, the first pope, and the apostles and and apostolic succession. So like they're very important. The the institutional church is very important. But the other the other piece of that, the sort of flip side of the coin is that the church also started with families. Um, when the apostles went and preached and baptized, they were baptizing entire households and bringing entire households into the church. Um, and when the early church celebrated liturgy, when they celebrated Eucharist together, it was in households. Um, somebody hosted, somebody was sheltering um, during persecutions. And so you have you have these two sides of a coin of uh, evangelists and preachers and apostles, and then you have families who are also growing and catechizing and bringing apart the faith. And so bring that all the way into the modern day, the idea of the domestic church isn't this sort of second-rate, second-hand church um, that's meant to like make women feel that they have a role or something like that, or, or sort of appease uh, men who don't become priests, something like that. It's the idea that the family is the first place that the church exists. The family is a community of love, husbands and wives with their children. The family is... Uh, a place where you can experience humility and sacrifice, where you have to get out of your own way in order to care for the other um, and to build each other up. It's kind of, um, it's really a radical way of experiencing the church. Um, because whereas there are some people, uh, Sarah Siebold and I call them our, our church friends, people who sit like in the pew in front of you or behind you, who you know by face and shake hands with, but don't really know by name. There was a woman at Elijah's baptism who we have been church friends with for since we were high schoolers who I still don't know her name. I think her name is Pat. And if she ever listens to this, I love you. And thank you for being an awesome church friend. 
But like that's, you know, there are people you see on Sundays who you're in community with who you just don't know that well. You don't have to necessarily care about um, if they did their laundry and put it away or whether they wash behind their ears. You just see them at church. Um, and yet you have this family who you are also church with who you have to care about and sacrifice for in a radical way. It's a totally different way and more intimate way of sort of being church together. Can I be picky? Absolutely. So going all the way back to the beginning of what you said, because um, you were saying good things and I didn't want to interrupt you. You said that the institutional church is opposed to the, the domestic church. And so I, I want to make that clear. You're just talking about um, almost like physical physically opposed, like standing opposite to almost like, am I wrong here? The vision I had in my head was almost like monks praying. They're facing each other, like in the chapel at St. Lance. Uh, that might be an okay analogy. I, uh, if I said they're opposed, I did, I certainly didn't mean they're opposed to each other in like a, a fighting each other type of way. Um, I think that two sides of the same coin analogy works really well. Or, um, I, I think monks inquire is a good way of saying that is you have the institutional church, um, sort of, preaching to and leading um, the domestic church. So you have the, the institutional church acting in the person of Christ the head, um, and you have the domestic church who's acting in the person of Christ the body. Um, a lot of the analogies for church work really well that way, um, where the priest is acting in the person of Christ the head. He's leading the entire church, um, and then the church is the body. So the, the family is the body of the church together, and also the parents lead the family. So there's a little bit of, they've worked together very well. And I think it's important to um, it's important to point out you cannot have one without the other, but you really cannot have the the institutional church without the domestic church because at, how are you going to raise up people to be a part of the institutional church? Um, also, I think we're kind of bringing it back to the present situation we're in with the you know coronavirus response, particularly being pretty strong here in Ohio. Um, I think we're finding out what the institutional church looks like without the domestic church. Um, and honestly, it, it's it's kind of sad. I bet a little bit creepy. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying mass by myself um, because I'm here at home doing doing my domestic church stuff. Anyway, I, I could un I could imagine that if if I were uh, a priest used to saying masses for people every Sunday to suddenly literally overnight have to do that by myself to an empty echoing church um that's got to be a little odd a little eerie i'm gonna maybe walk that back just a little bit um uh -oh. no that's all right i don't i don't know that i have anything negative to say about what you said but uh but you didn't like it i didn't really like it uh, i, I want to highlight that it's, it's a difference in gifts um uh, when i was uh, a young man in, in probably in college when i was when i was a young warthog not really it's not I'm that sorry. deep it's not that deep um, but when, when I, was, I was a young warthog, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm leaving that in for you. Uh, when I was in college and I was discerning the, the priesthood still, and I had been dating Sarah for a number of years, and I really, I think my discernment at that point was probably clear if I was honest with myself. Um, but, but what was hard for me was, was trying to figure out the two sides. Like no one had ever talked about the domestic church for me or like the goods of being a husband and the goods of being a father. And so I, uh, I had this idea that in order to get married, instead of, so if I were a priest, I would have the ability to love an entire community and be able to sacrifice myself for an entire community, which in my head was like, that was the ultimate form of love is to be able to lay myself down for a parish, to be able to lay myself down for the church. Um, and there's really, really beautiful imagery of like when a priest is ordained, he lays down on the marble and the litany of saints is prayed and he's symbolically laying his life down. Um, and in my head, in that discernment process, I didn't see a parallel in marriage. To me, marriage was not giving your whole life for the church. It was being limited to loving one person. And like, if you were lucky, a family, but even a big family was like, like seven kids, um, which we're probably never going to have seven kids, but <laughs> that was never, you know, so in my head, it was the discernment between laying my life down for the church and being married to one woman. Um, and in my case, it was being married to Sarah, which really complicated things because Ooh. I really loved Sarah but I was afraid that by loving Sarah, I wasn't going to be able to love the church. And the reality is those are not diametrically opposed things. They're just different sets of gifts. I've heard it said that uh, really good priests would make really good fathers and husbands, and really good husbands and fathers would make really good priests. 
Because if you have the ability to love, then that love will manifest how God wants it to. But it's what you're called to. And in my case, I was clearly called to be a husband and father. And what I've learned is that uh, I think it's harder. I actually don't know. I haven't been a priest, so I can't compare personally. Um, But the way in which you get to sacrifice and have to sacrifice as a husband and father is very real. It's every day. And while there isn't quite the same ceremony as like laying down on the marble and ceremonially laying down your life for the church, the reality is I lay down my life for the church all the time. I mean, when I have to make decisions about how we spend money and how I spend my time and what I can and can't do because it doesn't benefit or it benefits my family or it doesn't benefit or it benefits my youth group, I'm sacrificing. I'm doing, you know, the work of the church. I'm doing the work of, of Jesus in my state in life. Can I share my, my weird theory Please about do. motherhood and the priesthood? You love your weird theories. I do. I think that's why I'm here on this earth, is to be a voice for the weird. <laughs> <laughs> Saint of weird people. But yeah. yeah uh, working on it. Anyway, so my thought, and especially having gone through, or well, I should say going through it right now, my thought is that the the closest way a man uh, can experience motherhood is to be a priest, um, because as a mother, as as I'm learning, you you are constantly called to sacrifice. My day before I had before I had a son, and I, I love my son. Um, it's my life is awesome um, since he's gotten here, but before before he was here. I could get up and generally plan my day. And, you know, things happen. There's uh, accidents on the highway that, that you know, you end up late to work or uh, something happens, something pops up in your day, and all of a sudden, you know, it takes a total different trajectory from what you planned. And actually, perfectly proving my point is you might be able to hear in the background is our baby monitor because we're recording this uh, pretty late at night. Um, and my son is... Uh, crying, you know, of course, another thing that kind of uh, changes up your day. So where I was at is before generally I could plan my day. And and for the most part, I had control over how it went. And maybe it came off the rails because of um, a flat tire or whatever. But at the end of the day, for the most part, if I wanted to sit down and read a book from 9 p.m. until one in the morning or even from 9 to 10 p.m., I could do that. Now as a mom, I don't get that. (laughs) <laughs> from from the time I wake up, which could be very, very early in the morning, to the time I go to bed or don't go to bed. I am constantly, I guess I want to say ordered to or um, predisposed to whatever my son needs. Now, granted, you know, he's he's a baby. This this will change as he grows, as you know, as he gets more independent. But that being said, that I mean, that's a big life change. That's that's a big uh that's a big change in thought and how I think and how I act. So bringing all that back around, um, the priesthood, I think, is is very similar in a lot of ways. Um, from the time they get ordained, at least, you know, let's let's just go with diocesan priests. Um, they do not get to choose where they live. Like uh, even Zach and I can decide, well, you know what? We would like to live on the west side of Cleveland. We would like to live in a house that's blah, 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 has land, blah, blah, blah they get told where to go and they 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 make a promise of obedience to the diocese of cleveland many of them will never leave the diocese of cleveland for the rest of their lives that's a part of their promise um another thing too is i get woken up quite frequently in the middle of the night and i have to go get my son i have to go take care of him. you know he needs a diaper he's hungry he's sick whatever he needs um you know recently of course i think i've said um, our, our son, the prophet, uh, he's, he and I both have kind of had this, the sniffles and given the current situation, you know, I'm, I'm constantly watching him to make sure that they don't turn into something other than the sniffles, God forbid. So that means in the middle of the night, getting up and checking on him, checking on his breathing. And it's the same thing, uh, in the priesthood, maybe not quite as direct, but they often get called out of bed in the middle of the night for, you know, emergency anointings. Um, things that need to get taken care of. Um, if they're a pastor, you know, all sorts of things happen. I know I had to, I had to pull our pastor out. Sorry, Father's Dribbler. I had to pull him out of, out of, at least out of his room at, you know, about 1030 at night. Um, cause we thought that maybe somebody had broken into the hall. Spoilers, we're fine. It was fine. 
But still, that's a part of their job. So bringing it all around, there are a lot of parallels. They very much share a lot of the same um, responsibilities, the same call for sacrifice. It just may look different. It may look different uh, specifically in the concrete ways um, that that each, each member, either whether it's of the institutional church or domestic church, is called to lay down their lives. At the, the very end of the day, the sum total is we're both called to lay down our lives. And, and you know, one, one vocation may have a perk that the other doesn't have. It, it all is a wash. In the end, it all comes out to being a wash. A lot of you know our, our good friend, uh, Father Josh Trefney, calling you out. Maybe you'll listen to this. I don't know. He's been our friend for quite a long time, and he was just ordained last May. We like to, we like to you know, poke fun at each other, make fun at each other for, you know, some of the things that, that he has that we don't have, some of the things that we have that he'll never have. Um, in the end, though, however, it really is the universal call to lay down our lives as Christ did. Um, which I think leads us to my next point, which has to do with uh, what it means to sacrifice and why, why that's something beyond just like a good idea, but something really awesome and profound. Um, so there's this idea that in our baptisms, we share in Christ's roles as priests, prophets, and kings. Uh, it's something that I really like to teach in relation to confirmation, uh, but I'll restrict myself really, really briefly here just to uh, what it means to be a baptized priest. Um, so obviously in our baptism, we're not ordained, so we don't have the full like faculties of the priest to hear confessions, to say mass, but it is a role that we share with Christ to sacrifice and to pray. Um, and we do those things, again, not just for our benefit, but because they are... Uh, um, we do those things not because um, they just benefit us, but because in doing so, we share in Christ's ministries, Christ's ministry that's active now. So not just a historical Jesus the way that he, that he preached and baptized and prayed, but in who Christ is right now. And so that opens up a whole lot of avenues for us when we talk about what it means to be the church right now and the church in our house. And I think it's important to point out, this isn't something the church made up, and it's not something that we do under our own power. Um, it was really hard for me to understand that in sacrificing, that we unite our, our sacrifices to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for the salvation of the world. St. Paul has a quote that Father Matt Byrne shared with me. I probably could have read it myself if I was better at remembering the scripture that I read. But it's from St. Paul, and it just says that we fill up what is lacking in the sacrifice of Christ. And it's really hard to understand because what could be lacking in the sacrifice of Christ? It's supposed to be perfect and, and this one time for all sacrifice. But the sacrifice of Christ was, was active. It was Christ doing something. So the only thing lacking in the sacrifice of Christ is our recept receptivity to it, our reception of it. And so Christ gives us this opportunity to sacrifice with him, to accept our, our sufferings, to accept what's wrong in our lives, and to offer it up in order to, to unite with him for the salvation of the world. And I can't really do a better job of explaining it than that because it, it's a mystery. And I really, I hate hiding behind a mystery, but it is. Like, why would God who could fix everything in literally the blink of our eye, not only suffer on our behalf, but allow us to suffer and allow our sufferings to be meaningful. Wasn't that our first episode? A little bit, a little bit. I think I used the same quote, but um, to, stay on, to stay on this topic, though, I think it means something. I mean, even if our suffering right now is super, super minor, like, we're suffering. We're, we're not in school. We're away from our friends. We're suffering from... The, the rescheduling or the canceling of our sports seasons, the canceling of prom, perhaps, or the rescheduling of prom. Anxiety. Oh, tons of anxiety. I've, I've been anxious for like three weeks now. Uh, also, you know, well, I guess I was going to say worrying about what's to come. I suppose that would also be anxiety, but maybe even, I, I guess, dread about what's to come. Also, I just read an awesome article. I'm, I'm sure uh, you guys have probably seen it. It's pretty widely, or at least... I'm an old woman, and I'm still on Facebook. It's been really uh, widely circulated on Facebook. It's a it's from the Harvard Business Review, and it is called. Sorry, pulling up right here. That discomfort you're feeling is grief. Um, I think that's something we're also feeling is we're especially seniors. You're grieving uh, what you thought your senior year was going to look like because unfortunately that that's gone, most of it. Uh, we're grieving what we thought uh, uh, the end of the semester would be. We're grieving uh, the way our our lives are normally. Yeah, that's a lot of what we're going through. Yeah, not to say not to say anything of the suffering of anybody who uh, who actually is diagnosed with coronavirus or uh, 
the suffering of people who are essential employees who still have to go to work and and be in fear of the present situation. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just a ton of opportunities or there's a ton of of suffering that we are experiencing right now. Um, And there's essentially, I mean, there's two responses. There's probably three responses. There's fight or flight or avoidance, but um, which is flight. I don't know what the three responses are. What's the third one? It's fight, flight, or freeze. Oh, fight, flight, or freeze. You knew it. I knew it. There's actually, uh, I recently was a, Sidebar, I recently was at a training uh, this time last year, actually, which, anyway, um, what I learned about, there was another one. It's fight, flight, or freeze, or flattery, which I find highly interesting and is my pet peeve, but continue. <laughs> interesting, but we'll leave it. Um, <laughs> but I think with suffering, there's those same responses work. Like, we could either freeze and do nothing, which, if I'm totally honest, that's where I was the first maybe at least three days, if not the first week of being sheltered in place. I just, I didn't know what to do. So I was kind of, I was kind of frozen. We could flee from it. We could just avoid suffering. And that's, I mean, I hate to say it, modern society is totally built to flee this. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the fact that uh, the government, the the government who's doing actually a really good job of handling this, I think. In Ohio. um, In Ohio is telling us like, well, just sit home and watch Netflix. Like, uh, there's not a whole lot. That was Dr. Amy Acton. (laughs) Dr. Amy Acton. Her there's, holiness, doctor. No, go, go ahead, go ahead. Um, I mean, there's a ton of good information, like on coronavirus.ohio.gov, but there's not a whole lot of information about, like, well, how do I, how do I deal with being at home? And I guess that's not. I don't expect the government to have an answer to that. That's some of what of what Sarah and my job is, I guess. Mm-hmm. Full circle. Full circle. But um, you know, they're 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 sort of actively encouraging avoiding it. Like, just stay home, avoid the plague. The plague, avoid the pandemic, yeah. and uh, <laughs> Freudian slip, and avoid avoid thinking about it. You know, you know, immerse yourself in in your work, immerse yourself in Netflix, and in our case, you know, TikTok, our case, your case, um, and and avoid it. But then there's this there's a third option, which I think is the unappealing answer, which is is to embrace it. Um, I mean, Jesus calls us to take up our co- our cross daily and follow Him, um, and that really is. I mean, it, it is an unattractive option because the cross is lonely. The cross is heavy and rough and terrible, um, and yet that's that's probably the best option of the three. If we embrace our cross, we can do something with it. Whereas if we run from it, what are we doing? We're 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 doing nothing. We're avoiding. And in fact, when we avoid this suffering, we're gonna only make it worse on ourselves. But like that really is the option for us right now. Is we have the ability to to embrace this suffering, to embrace this cross, and we should do it because good will come of it. Maybe not, maybe not temporal good, maybe not good at the time being, because that's not always how the cross works, but definitely eternal good um, for our salvation and the salvation of others. To tie this even into the domestic church, our, our suffering and our sacrifice isn't just for ourselves. I mean, we're not earning our salvation by embracing our cross. We're just doing what we're asked. But I think there's some good to that. I think it's okay to just embrace our cross and know that God is using it. Maybe not for our immediate gratification, maybe not for anything that we can even see the ends of, but that our suffering brings about good. The other thing, um, and maybe I'm going back a step too far (laughs) in some of this conversation, but the other thing that's important is by baptized priests, we have the ability to pray. It's really, really easy to misconstrue like the sacraments of the church as the only way we can connect with God. Um, Certainly they're very important. They're ways that God pours his grace out into us, that he gives himself to us for our salvation and, and for bringing us back to himself, but they're not the only way. By virtue of our baptism, Christ is present among us. You know, where two or three are gathered in his name, Christ is present among us. And even if you're in your own house, like that doesn't change. You still are able to have a relationship, a mystical relationship with God. You're still able to communicate with him. Um, and this again touches on an earlier episode of ours, but there's nothing wrong with, um, you know, being in your room at the end of the day and just saying like, honestly to God, like, I don't know what's going on. I'm scared. I'm confused. I'm hurt. I'm suffering. I'm, you know, and sort of laying it all on the line for God. Like, that's okay. That's a good thing. And you're able to do that because, because we are prayers. We are people who are in communion with God by virtue of our baptism. So those two things, I mean, suffering and prayer, uh, to put a mini conclusion on this, suffering and prayer are two ways that as the church in our house, we can make a huge difference in the world. Huge difference. I think a big thing that often gets overlooked in in specifically regarding the domestic church is that we, you know, I have to watch my wording here, but I think we we certainly are called to lead prayer within our own homes. Uh, Zach and I kind of have an interesting story about prayer. Uh, Zach and I met in youth group. 
when we were in high school, um, God has always been a, a huge part of our identity and a huge part of our relationship. Not uh, patting ourselves on the back here, and I'm going to prove that mm-hmm. by what I'm about to say is even besides that, uh, praying with each other and, and praying in front of each other and, and allowing for that openness about our spiritual lives with each other has actually been a bit of a struggle. Um, it's a little awkward. Like, I mean, you agree? Yeah, I mean, we're two, uh, we're both very spiritual people, but we also have two very different spiritualities. And so very different. The, the way those intertwine has always been a little messy. I, I wouldn't say messy. It's more about, um, it's been a long, long road of learning to understand the other and, and learning to um, really walk in the other's shoes. And so because of that, I think we've we've hesitated maybe more than than others who maybe are more on the same wavelength, at least in that way. Um, we've kind of hesitated to, to really share our prayer lives with each other. Well, I shouldn't say it that way. We've hesitated to actively pray with each other. Yeah, we've always been sort of the, uh, the sounding board for each other. So we would sort of pray independently and have independent spiritual lives. And we bounce ideas off each other or we talk about it, but we didn't intertwine much of our prayer lives together or, or or learn to do it yeah yeah i'll go do my holy hour and i'll come back and tell you how how it went or what i got or what i felt or what i didn't feel and what i'm struggling with blah 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 but you know when it came down to all right well let's sit down and, and pray together before bed or in the morning or whatever i think that's something that we've kind of struggled with or i'm um, again maybe not struggle with but balked at balked at for a little bit um and so again, bringing bringing it back full around to full circle to the the domestic church is we have since having a child, it, it's become a lot more clear to us that it's it's really easy for us to go in our quiet corners. That works for a long time. Now we have a child though, and we're both very much aware how he could miss out. He could. I think it's really easy. Well, and even more to just see that like. To not see mom and dad praying together and sharing that part of ourselves, especially when it's supposed to be such a big part of our lives. Right, right. So we've really been more intentional. And again, bringing that word, I know we talked about that in another episode. In both episodes. Did we? We love the word intentional. I do, yes. That's a that's a counseling word, too. Anyway, I, being more intentional about sitting down and praying together in front of our son, um, we've kind of had to, to reevaluate things, relook at things. And I think it's really been uh, for the best. So bringing that, all that to say that we absolutely, as members of the domestic church, are called to lead prayer in our home. Um, that's the only way our son is ever going to learn it. If I, you know, if we never actually, um, I'll tell you a story. Pull up your carpet squares. I'll tell you a story. You like, <laughs> not to criticize you on air, but I need to put this on there. You mm. tell like one really long sentence with a hundred subordinate clauses. And it's so fun to listen to, and it'd be horrible to edit. Go on. When I was at Holy Name, I had this awesome uh, English... When I was a young boy. <laughs> All right, I deserve that. When I was at Holy Name, uh, and I, my senior year, I had this awesome teacher, English teacher, who unfortunately just passed away. Um, she was like, she's the reason I can write, and I breeze through college because of her. However... At the time, it was super hard because all she ever nailed me for was writing a million subordinate clauses. That's just the way I think. Anyway, you didn't care about that. Is that not part of the story? No, I guess not. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I remember when I was a lot younger, probably second grade, my mom, and I went to Catholic school. My parents dragged me kicking and screaming, me and my brother, to Mass every single weekend. And I remember my mom was like, well, we're going to say a rosary before bed. And we always, my parents were always like, say your prayers. And we we said prayers. And, you know, as I got older, they kind of let us do our own thing. Um, But I remember my mom, whatever, for whatever reason, that night had decided we were going to say a rosary. And that just wasn't our normal bedtime routine. Um, We would say like in our father, Hail Mary, and then go to bed or whatever. And I just remember balking at that and being like, ew, no, we don't do that. Um, that I, I don't want any part of that. I just remember in, and again, I was probably only eight years old or nine. I just remember having this overwhelming feeling of it being super awkward. Um, and I think I remember being really rude to her. And my poor mom, um, I remember she did, she and my brother, who was younger and kind of didn't care, 
I remember they did say the rosary and I was in the living room, like indignant watching TV for, I don't know. I thought that was the right way to go. Um, so, but bringing that back around when it's not something that's in the air, in the house or in, in your bloodstream, it's not something that you, you just know it is a lot harder to transition into. Um, so we absolutely, as members of the domestic church, we are called to lead prayer. Um, you know, Zach and I, once again, we are in a very unique position as parents, but you guys too, um, I, to your parents, you guys are witnesses to your parents. I think far more than, than you realize, um, you're witnesses to your siblings, uh, leading the rest of your household in your own way in prayer is absolutely something you're called to do as a, uh, priest via baptism. Yeah. And this is a, a great opportunity, um, to do it too. Uh, I think it was, so we record these ahead of time, obviously. I think it was last Thursday, don't quote me on that, um, Pope Francis asked for everyone to pray a rosary at the same time worldwide, which is a kind of an awesome, awesome thing to ask. Uh, but what I noticed, and not, not to knock groups who did this, but a lot of, a lot of youth and a lot of youth ministers uh, like took to Instagram Live to pray. Well, the reality is uh, it's much more the job of the family to pray together than the youth minister to pray. Um, and that was a great opportunity for families to gather together in the living room, a place where community should happen, a place where community does happen, um, and pray together. You know, Sunday mornings, we don't have the opportunity to gather as the entire church uh, around the table of the Lord, which is, you know, something that, uh, very much understating it, is a bummer, um, that hopefully we'll, we'll get back together on Divine Mercy Sunday. Um, but you can get together and watch Mass. That's an excellent thing. You could also get together and pray morning prayer or get together and pray a rosary uh, or get together and do um, contemplative prayer. Like, I really, I don't know any families who do contemplative prayer, but you totally could. There's nothing against, you know, mom reading scripture and everyone sort of meditating for 15 minutes. It'd be a little out there, but it'd be awesome to see. We don't do it, but you could. I try contemplative prayer. I love Ignatius. No, I, don't I do think, it well, but I honest, love it. I think that's one of the only, the few ways you and I, um, you know, early on, I think that's one of the few ways you and I kind of, that one of the um, plots of, of common ground I think we both had. Because it, it gave us, we prayed together, but then we had a little bit of room, individual room to kind of retreat into. Yeah. But so praying together as, as a family in common spaces, some of the other ways, and, and not to turn this into like practical tips, but, uh, you know, most of your houses probably have a crucifix. I think ours has one in every room. Sarah was, was literally annoyed by how many crucifixes I had and where I tried to hang them all. It was excessive. It was excessive. I still have a box of them. If anyone wants a crucifix, just ask me. I am your man. Oh, please. People think that because I was like uh, a religious person, you know, a person who cared about his faith, that like I wanted every piece of old religious artifact anytime anyone passed away or cleaned their house. And so I had boxes of like kitschy religious stuff. I just started leaving them places. There's stuff at St. Leonard's that I just put there that no one ever moved. Presents. <laughs> we call them presents. Um, but like in your house, you have at least a crucifix probably. Um, is that in a place where it matters? Is that in a place where you guys see? Is it something that's important that you guys gather around? Um, I want to share just two things we have. So in our, our bedroom, we have the crucifix and rosary from my grandparents' house that hung over their bed. They were married... Uh, just shy of 50 years. My grandma passed away um, during their 50th year of marriage. And that's something, I don't know how much that we make a conscious effort to like venerate it, but we're very aware that that, you know, that religious imagery is part of our life and our marriage, that where we lay down our lives for each other, that God is is essential to that. Waffle House is closing. This is a real oh, emergency. Actual, no, that's an actual thing. Yeah, Waffle House is, it's not closing all of their... Uh locations the ones in ohio are still open but yeah a oh lot that means ohio is doing well do you know waffle house is closing is an actual mark of how bad hurricanes are in the south yeah no fema fema uses yeah, fema it. uses waffle houses closing as a mark of how horrible like natural disasters are yeah so waffle house is closing uh we have in the the main hall of our house um which is going to get a more prominent display when we move an icon if. of the holy family from the philippines that our friends are oh, really Former students and friends of ours, parents, but Mr. and Mrs. Aldana. Thank you. They, they bought us and brought us back from the Philippines. And it, I mean, it's just an awesome image. And it's a reminder to us that we we have to imitate the Holy Family, that that our roles as, as husband and wife, our role as mother and father is to image Trinity and to image the love of Christ for the church. And I think there's 
it's important to make a distinction there because in my mind, again, growing up cradle Catholic, going to Catholic school through grad school, whenever I saw the Holy family, it was this picture perfect family that never fought. Mary was always like gazing off lovingly in the distance. And Joseph was just hanging out, not oversleeping, not overeating, not complaining. Anyway, I think, uh, you know, it, it, it can start to look unattainable. And, and when you read the scripture, they are anything but. I mean, Mary and Joseph lost their kid. <laughs> we have yet to lose Elijah. The elevator! Anyway, nobody, <laughs> nobody watches How I Met Your Mother. But yeah, they, you know, at some point, Mary's just walking on and is like, ah, Joseph has him. And Joseph is walking on and is like, no, Mary has him. Um, so they lost their kid. They also, I mean, think about it. They start the whole situation in scandal. They start the whole situation. I was going to say, and then followed up by riding on a donkey nine months pregnant and giving birth in a barn. Having ridden on an airplane, which was air conditioned, and uh, they gave me terrible snacks, but at least there were snacks. I could not imagine, at eight, oh, at eight months pregnant, I could not imagine how terrible a donkey was. Yeah, and so not only they take this trip to Bethlehem, where they think that it's it's going to be, you know, a limited trip, right? They're not moving to Bethlehem. They're just going there for the census. And then Mary has has uh, Jesus. And then all of a sudden, they have to flee to Egypt. Like the whole thing, the script changes on them. They have to flee to Egypt for years to protect their family. And then when they come back, they have to face, you know, the normal struggles of, of well, and then they lose Jesus. And then they have to face the normal struggles of family life in, in Nazareth, which, you know, who knows? I'm sure they weren't, they weren't great. Um, I'm sure they had to face poverty and on and on and on. So no, no, the Holy Family was holy. Um, the Holy Family was not picture perfect. Not, or maybe when I say picture perfect, I mean the Holy Family was not step pretty. They were not the suburban picture of uh, perfection that sometimes I think we paste onto them. All right, so one of the ways, we're going to end a little bit on practical notes. We don't want to always end on practical, but these are a couple good suggestions for the time being. So we have, we have three suggestions to sort of how to act as the domestic church, how to really be efficacious, have power as the domestic church, especially in this time where the domestic church is really the, the best expression of church that we have. And so my first suggestion comes from John Paul II in uh, Familiaris Consortio, where he talks a lot about uh, the domestic church and the church's vision for the family. And that is to form a community. By virtue of being a family, like you are a community, whether you are intentional about it or not, but you can, in fact, be intentional about it. If you guys make efforts to come together for meals, if you make efforts to come together in prayer, you can really build community with each other, you know, more closely than you had before. Even things like uh, doing chores for each other or, or making small sacrifices for each other. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways in which our family has grown together um, I call it being martyred by dirty diapers, but it, it's, you know, I had to learn to like do the dishes and, and change Elijah's diaper and not do it because like I had to, I mean, I do have to do them, but do them in such a way that it like, it eases life for Sarah or it, it makes our lives easier in the morning. Like that's how we've built communities by learning to sacrifice for each other. And it's, um, I mean, it is a bit of a challenge and it's going to be a real bit of a challenge when you are on top of each other for two, three weeks. But it's, uh -huh. it's really important Hopefully to grow together in that, that community. I want to point out, too, um, kind of like how we said earlier, don't deprive yourself of uh, that connection, of the experience, of that relationship, um, of letting family into your spiritual life or, or being led into their spiritual life. You know, I kind of I regret going back to the story about my mom. I kind of regret it that I, I totally just turned her off and was probably really rude to her. Sorry, mom for for praying that one time and i know zach and i have wasted a lot of time just kind of being uh, bashful i think is a, a good way to describe it um it really is kind of a treasure you're missing out on that, that you don't even know is there so it's i guess my point is it's worth the it's worth over riding or um dealing with the awkwardness the the benefit at the end will be well worth it yeah and even the awkwardness of maybe you as a, a teenager need to be the one who initiates um, there has not been a small number of teenagers involved with our youth groups who have ended up evangelizing their parents um, because their parents were open to the church or open to prayer or open to God, um, but no one had really made the invitation, and it took their 
you know, teenage child getting involved in the church to make that invitation and make that connection for them. Um, so don't be afraid to be the one who suggests like, hey guys, maybe we, you know, we watch the mass live stream and say a rosary on Sunday morning. It might be a little awkward to put yourself out there like that, especially to your family, because you'll know, um, you'll, you'll have a good judge of their thoughts ahead of time, but it's, it's a perfect opportunity to make that invitation, to make that uh, connection with them. Another point I think that that is is really important is not to be passive, but to be active. Um, I think if we are passive, then we do end up with that that kind of um, that dull, flat, lifeless portrait of the domestic church that that I thought of when I first heard the term. Um, that then it is just kind of this like phrase that that's a pat on the head, go in the corner and, and be busy while everyone else is doing important things. Um, so being active, once again, it comes back to that idea of being intentional about things. It means forming your conscience. It means actively, actively working on your prayer life, actively uh, look, looking for different ways to uh, deepen your spiritual life. This could be uh, books. This could be talks. Um, Zach and I are a huge fan of Bishop Robert Barron. There is Father Mike, Father Mike Schritz of Ascension and, Presents. Uh, and not to self-plug, but if you go to... Uh bit.ly slash hsm dash digital dash ministry we have a whole list of links and stuff to you know form your faith during this time of stay in our shelter in place i'm really impressed that you knew the entire address off the top of your head i've used it a ton the past two weeks that's good um but i mean that that too that's i think that's really important um i think it is i think sometimes what happens is the domestic church kind of stands in its corner um, and is kind of like, well, help us, help us. Or, you know, nobody told us what to do, so we just didn't do anything. Well, in the end, then nothing gets done. Nobody grows. Yeah, and the, and I think that's somewhat, e- the maybe the problem with families or just the nature of families is uh, C.S. Lewis defines the kind of love that families have for each other as, as storge. It's the love for people who just happen to be there. Um, and I think that's how we view our families. They're the people who just happen to be in our lives. Well, if we do that, then we also view the domestic church that way. It's the church that just happens to be, like, these happen to just be the other Catholic people around me. And that's a very weak version of what we really mean. Like, there's this robust notion that the family is the, the first training ground of the faith. It's where we get to try out prayer. It's where we get taught prayers, where we get taught sacrifices, where we get taught humility and virtue and love. And that's that's really important. That's not something that's passive and receptive. That's something that's that's very active and returned Uh, to us in a way we can practice it, which I guess leads to our third point, which is the domestic church is about love. I I love the topic of love. I love C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves. I like saying the word love. I think English needs more words for love. I think the word love uh, is weird because you can love your dog and love grandma and love Snickers bars. That's a topic for another podcast. But uh, you have the opportunity as a family and as, as the domestic church by extension to express love for one another. You know, and in one hand, maybe that means like being conscious about saying I love you to your parents. But on another level, it's, it's much deeper than that. It means like like sacrificing for each other, giving of yourselves. Love means willing the good of another. You know, and so what does that look like in this time of, of being together? Is, is what what is putting the goods of another before your own? And I think we're I, I shouldn't say I think I know we're going to be faced with a lot of opportunity to put the good of the other before ourselves. Because um, as you are probably constantly aware, we're in a time of a lot of anxiety um, and anxiety shows up in different ways. For some people, it shows up as anger and other people, it shows up as frustration and other people, it shows up as avoidance and other people, it shows up, you know, just very clearly as anxiety and on and on and on. And so your little sister, your brother, your uh, who knows, maybe grandma, you live with grandma, whoever. Um, who you are now sheltered in place with, <laughs> who the law is now forcing you to be with, it, it may just get under your skin and it's going to get under your skin quick. And I think it's, it's, it's an act of love to be patient when, when you just want to tell your sister off for being in your space and you cannot stand it for one more moment. Or somebody eats the rest of the zebra cakes that you have been enjoying and has been your one... Yes, yeah, Sarah. <laughs> What? what? I didn't need... Uh, anyway, it's an act of love not to fly off the handle and publicly bring them down on mm-hmm. a bucket. 
so it's an act of love and that's being Christ even if it is just withholding that that um, mean thing you want to snap back at your sibling or yeah. on and know. big picture it's an act of love that we're even sheltered in place in the first place it's it seems that the coronavirus disproportionately affects older people and people with pre-existing conditions so it's an act of, of love of real charity for us to stay home you know to have not gone to spring break to not go out um, and drive all over God's green earth when we want to and we feel crazy stuck up in our house because we don't want to be the ones who are who are spreading the virus. You know, it's an act of, of charity and sacrifice on our parts to stay home. I mean, granted, now the governor has told us we have to, um, but even before that, like, this should be something we should do for the common good and the good of our neighbors. I mean, it is, it is an act of love in itself. And I just want to, I don't think you can emphasize enough that love is willing the good of the other, and that comes back to sacrifice. I think that, and bringing it full circle, the domestic church and the institutional church, both sacrifice are called, I should say, both are called to sacrifice in different ways. But in the end, the bottom line is we are all called to sacrifice. Um, and so I think that's something in, especially again, given the present situation, I think that's something if we are really going to work on being a domestic church and, and are really forced to look at how we are the domestic church right now, we really need to be aware of that. How are we sacrificing? How are we loving? How are we willing the good of the other? Yeah, and I'll give you a snippet of scripture. This was the, the first part of the second reading at, at Sarah and my wedding, uh, because people love to use the love is patient, love is kind from 1 Corinthians 13, and it is an excellent reading, but there's a, a preface to it that people often leave out because it's not as attractive. Um, and that's what I'm going to read right now is, but I shall show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in human and angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I think there's a, a real reality that love needs to underscore everything that we do. And so love needs to underscore our families. Love need, needs to underscore how we gathered together as the church in our households. And love needs to underscore how we deal with this time and how we act and how we form ourselves.